Amen. Good morning. My name is Pastor Joshua, in case you forgot. It's great to be back, and um, I really want to thank the elders in the church for giving our family a break and letting us uh, go on vacation and just rest. People ask, you know, what'd you do? I was like, man, I fell off the earth into a body of water, lost consciousness. Every now and then I could hear little voices going, Daddy, Daddy. Yesterday I came to and said, oh, I got to go preach. Okay, so anyways, it's, it's great to be back. I hope, I think I got through the first service. Of course, we now are back to timely issues because I'm back, so uh, that. I, but um, also, man, it's like uh, I came back and uh, saw that there's like new flowers planted around the place and uh, these great things happening. Mean, it's like the place got better after I left. Uh, I know Daphne Fay and Jolene Wakes have planted some stuff, and uh, Jeannie Armstrong planted some stuff, so the grounds look good. And I want to thank the elders and the speakers for coming in and doing such a great do- job speaking and preaching and teaching and all of that. We had a guest speaker come in, so a lot of great things have happened. And, uh, and so I want to thank them. And I did hear uh, a sermon. I heard, went to a church, big church, and uh, heard preaching that was far better than mine. But I got to tell you, man, we have the best music in the world. I've not found our equal in music. Can I get an amen? I mean, I just, our music is so good. And so it's so great to be back and, uh, and to hear the music. So it's great to be back. We're, we're, we're glad to be back. And uh, great to be preaching again. We're going to continue our series on the spreading flame in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is really uh, kind of chronicles the first 30 years of the Christian church. Luke is answering a probing question for a guy by the name of Theophilus. How did the spread of Christianity reach the world? And naturally, when you look at a survey of the beginning of or the beginning of a history of you're going to get a lot of first, and we've seen a lot of first. We've seen the first sermon, and we've seen the, the first persecution of the church, and we've seen the, the first deacons of the church. And today what we're going to look at and study is the first martyr of the church, the first guy ever who on behalf of the gospel was killed for his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to prepare us for that, Uh, Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. He said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Jesus was promising that anybody who becomes a martyr on behalf of the gospel, anybody who dies because of their faith in Jesus, would receive a crown in heaven. And so we're going to look at the first guy in the history of the church who was received by Jesus in heaven after his death and received a crown. And interestingly enough, his name is Stephen, which means crown. So I thought that was kind of a cool fact. Stephen is the first uh, martyr, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, and uh, got a lot of ground to cover today on this uh, martyrdom of Stephen. So let me pray and uh, ask God to bless us and to help me today. God, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to again stand in your church and uh, stand with your people and to, uh, on behalf of them, 
and for your glory to teach and to preach the gospel from the Bible. Um, I thank you for this privilege, and I pray that you would really enliven the word uh, to us, that you would bring it home and apply it by your Holy Spirit to our hearts and our minds, that you would renew us, change us, transform us, have your way with us. If, if what you need to do in our life is bring challenge, then challenge us. If you need to bring conviction, then convict us. If you need to bring comfort and encouragement, then do that. Whatever is needed, Lord, I pray you would do and that I would not interfere with your agenda and that the messenger would not get in the way of the message. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we've got to learn about this guy, Stephen, and I want to start by talking about and introducing you and helping you to meet Stephen and get to know him well. The first thing I want to talk about is the character of Stephen, and we learned last time uh, when I was here, like, it seems like a year ago, uh, we first met Stephen, and we heard about him in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. Let's look at the character of Stephen. It says here, and Luke is clearly really wanting us to know that this guy did not deserve to get killed. Uh, this is a guy who has amazing godly character. In verse 5 it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we learn about Stephen is that here's a man who at one point in time knew that he had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He knew he was separated from God, but likely because he heard uh, one of Peter's sermons on the fact that Jesus died for sinners and was buried and rose again on the third day, Stephen had faith in the gospel. He believed in the gospel. And as a result of that, he received the Holy Spirit. But not only was he a man who received the Holy Spirit, he was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He came under the influence. He was surrendered to the Spirit. He was open to the Spirit's leading and guidance in his life. This was a man who, once he became a Christian, got connected to God and, and, and had, this, had this spiritual life, and he was full of faith. We learn again, and let me just skip down and cheat a little bit, but if you go down to Acts chapter 6 and verse 15, right before he preaches his final sermon, which will lead to his death, it says that they were gazing at him, and all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So right before he preaches, they look at him and they go, face of an angel, which I know you guys are used to because you get that every week, amen? I mean, every time I get up here and preach, you're like, man, he's got the face of an angel. You know what I mean? But actually what it's talking about is that's a, that's a way of speaking of, that refers to Moses when Moses went up on the mountain. And Moses saw the glory of God. And Moses spent time with God. And, and it says that when Moses came off the mountain, he shone because he had experienced the glory of God. Because he had spent time with God. And when it says that Stephen had the face of an angel, that's Luke's way of saying, here's a man who has spent time with God. He goes up on the mountain. And you know that's an encouragement to you and I, isn't it? You know, the, the secret to character, to being filled with the Spirit, to being influenced by God, is go up on the mountain and spend time with God. To be people who, who absorb and not, not let the things of life eclipse our time with God. He went up on the mountain and he spent time with God. And, and that, was, that was a part of his character. That was a part of his makeup and his identity was spending time with God. And that was the way, ultimately, he was able to face opposition. 
You know, he's going to face this incredible persecution. He's going to face people who want to kill him. He's going to face stones and and angry looks and people who don't like him. And and we ask, how was he able to do it? How, How was somebody able to go the full distance and die for their faith? And ultimately, the answer is, you spend time with God. You spend time and and enjoy and savor and be satisfied and treasure your relationship with God. And if you treasure God, then you can face any obstacle, any storm, any, any, any opposition that might come up in your life. Now, that's Stephen. That's the kind of guy he is. He's spending time with God. But here's the second thing about Stephen that I want you to know about is I want you to know about the mission of Stephen. And we learn about the mission of Stephen in verse 8. It says here, go to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And what this means is that ultimately Stephen was not somebody who believed that Christianity was a privatized experience, that all Christianity is is just spending time with Jesus. Ultimately, Stephen came off the mountain. Ultimately, Stephen came away from spending time with God, and he got on mission. He didn't want to keep what God gave to him. He wanted to share what God had given to him to other people. And so just like Jesus and the apostles, he was doing wonders and signs among the people. And then it says here in verse 9, that some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. And so Stephen is witnessing, and he's, he's debating, and he's disputing, and he's going into this synagogue of, of Hellenistic Jews. And, and, and there are, are people, are Jewish people from all over the world who have come to Jerusalem. And, and we know that one of those places was Cilicia. And so that means that likely uh, one of the people who was there arguing with him was the Apostle Paul, because Paul is from Tarsus, and Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia. And so I can imagine that Stephen and the Apostle Paul, before Paul liked Jesus, in fact, when Paul hated hated Jesus and hated Christians is arguing with Stephen and Stephen is arguing with 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 Paul and they're debating and and he's witnessing and he's trying to convince them Jesus is the Messiah Jesus is the fulfillment of the law Jesus is the one who's come to save us from our bondage he's witnessing he's on mission but as a result of being on mission He gets in trouble with the message that he's bringing. Let me outline and let's spend the majority of our time on the message of Stephen. Look at verse 11. As he's debating with them, or verse 10, pardon me. So he's witnessing, he's on mission, and it says, And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him. And they brought him before the council, the same council that had arrested Peter and John, the same council that had arrested Jesus and had him crucified, the Sanhedrin. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak the words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And ultimately, their false witness and their accusations, we begin to understand what the message is of Stephen. In verse 11, they say that he's spoken blasphemous words against two things. They say, Moses, 
And he's spoken against God. Moses stood for the law. They said he's spoken against Moses or the law of Moses. And then they said he's spoken against God, which for them was and had become the temple. That's why in verses 13 and 17, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So from that background, from that accusation, which is distorted and exaggerated, but underneath it, we can tell what Stephen's message really was. And the message of Stephen was, look, Jesus has come. He's fulfilled Old Testament law in his righteousness. And Jesus has become the new temple by which people can experience God. For Jewish people, the law had become a mediator between God and man. In other words, uh, the law was the truth and the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except by the law. And the temple had become the very representation and the personification of God himself. And Stephen is coming and he's saying, we got to change our perspective about the temple and about the law of God. And what we've got to understand is that Jesus has adjusted how we look at temple and law by becoming the temple... And by fulfilling the law in our place, he's asking them to, everybody say change. Oh, who likes change? Young men go into ministry all the time and they say, oh, Jesus has called me to become a pastor. I'm going to go change the world. I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to change the world for Jesus. And then they get their first pastorate. And you know what happens? They realize they can barely change the bulletin. And when they do change the bulletin in the church, they're like, oh, that is great. That is phenomenal work. Right? This guy is coming to these religious people and these religious props. And in the shadow of the temple, this argument is happening. In the shadow of the glorious temple that Herod had built in Jerusalem. The place where only God could be experienced. Stephen is saying, Jesus has replaced the temple. And Jesus has fulfilled the law. And if you want to know God. And if you want to experience God. you got to believe in the name of Jesus. If a pastor can barely change a bulletin, do you think Stephen's going to get away with this message about the temple? With religious people? No. They're like, we're going to kill you. And you know, he's got the face of an angel, so you know he's positive. He's like, isn't this exciting? And all of them are going, no, we're going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, we're, going to, we're going to get a rope. We're going to hang, it's, it's done. Right. To summarize his message, what... Stephen is saying what you and I need to know is that it's not about a place. It's about a person that makes us right with God. And it's not about a rule. It's about a relationship with the person of God. That's what Stephen is saying. And what they do is they arrest him and they say, we're going to put you on trial for saying these blasphemous things we are going to put you on trial and you're going to have to defend yourself but ultimately what happens in Acts chapter 7 is Stephen puts them on trial Stephen puts religion on trial and ultimately Stephen puts what I call legalism on trial 
Stephen ultimately confronts one of the greatest enemies to all spirituality that the world has ever known, which is legalism. Legalism has killed more people than alcohol. Legalism has killed more people than drugs. Legalism has killed more people than anything the secular world has come up with. Legalism is the greatest enemy to the work of God in your life. Believe me when I tell you. Legalism killed Jesus. Legalism is going to kill Stephen, but before Stephen dies, he is going to put legalism on trial. You say, what is legalism? I'm glad you asked that question. Let me give you a definition. In fact, I have a slide. Let me give it to you. Legalism is two things. Number one, legalism is treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. In this context, what the Jewish people had come to see the law as is the mediator between God and people. And they said the only way you can be made right with God is through the mediation of Torah, the mediation of law. And that's taking biblical standards and saying this is the way you can be saved. You want to be accepted by God? you gotta, you got to be obedient. You want to be accepted by God? you got to meet God halfway. You're not going to be helped by God unless you help yourself. The second thing, though, that legalism is, if you've ever been in a legalistic church, you know this. Legalism is erecting specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means of full participation with God's people. So what legalism does is it says not only do you have the rule of God through Moses, but we're going to add rules. We're going to add extra stuff that you got to follow in order to give you the security of having full participation with God. In this circumstance, no doubt the temple had become far more than it was originally meant to be. In fact, the temple had become the very representation and even an idol. They began to think of the temple as God himself. They had added regulations. And legalism, obviously, see, this is what happened. See, like you go to a church and they're like, well... You know, you got to follow the Ten Commandments, which is good. And you got to do, do what God's leading you to do. But on top of that, you can't touch or come close to. And they start adding in regulations. I won't list those right now, but you know what it is. Now, the question for you and I, and here's the deal. You and I are tempted, especially after we become Christians, we are all leaning towards legalism. And we have to confront legalism in our life all the time. We're tempted to be legalistic because not only do we struggle with legalism, but then when we hate legalism so much, we can attack legalism legalistically. Did you know that? I can hate legalism so much that I can hate it legalistically. And so, okay, anyway, I'll move on. But what Stephen is going to do is Stephen is our liberator from legalism. That's why his sermon is so important. We got to listen to this sermon that he preached. And we got to hear him, and we got to hear him give us the lessons and the reasons why legalism is so, so bad, okay? So let's go into this sermon, and this is, we go to chapter 7. Let me read verse 1 for you. It says here, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, and then he begins his sermon. Now, this sermon is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, which is amazing because it's a book of sermons and speeches. 
And this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And superficially, when we look at it, he surveys all of the Old Testament. So he talks about Abraham and Joseph, and he talks about, uh, uh, he talks about Moses, and he talks about uh, the patriarchs, and he talks about uh, David and Solomon. And so, he, so superficially, you go, oh, this is just like a boring history lesson. Like he's just like, you know, talking about the history of Israel. But behind this this survey of Old Testament history is theology and his lessons that Stephen is using to attack the very worldview that his accusers are bringing against him, which is legalism. And so I'm going to break it up, of course, in sections. The first section I'm going to say is lessons from Abraham in Mesopotamia. He begins his survey of Old Testament with Abraham. And he says there in verse 2, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land to which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, stop there. Here's the problem with legalism. The first problem with legalism and the ultimate problem with legalism is is what I call an upward problem. In other words, what legalism always does is it confines and limits what God can do. It defines and limits the areas and the geographies and the places where God can work. In this context, they were saying God can't work in anybody's life unless they are in the temple in Jerusalem. Now here, what Stephen is saying is he says in verse 2, The God of glory, which we sang about today, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And not only did God appear to Abraham, He appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is bad. It's pagan. It's godless. It's like the most worst place. Everybody say Iraq. That's Mesopotamia. Right? And Abraham is living, originates in Mesopotamia. Abraham is an Iraqi. All right? And, and, and he's living in Iraq, and God appears to him in a pagan place as he's worshiping other gods, and he's got all these pagan beliefs, and God appears to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Now, if you were to read Genesis, in Genesis, it only says that God called him in Haran. And what Stephen is saying is that before that call that's described in Genesis, there was a previous call that goes all the way back to Mesopotamia. And his point is this, you can't confine God. God can work anywhere, in anybody's life, in any context, in any bondage, in any place. It doesn't matter. You can't limit God. You can't limit God to a church building or a synagogue or a mosque or, or a temple. You can't limit God to Middle East or, or South America or North America or the United States of America. Like God can work in anybody's life and anybody's place. And when we become legalistic, we begin to go, well, you know, God is regulated over here. You know, all of us, listen. All of us, we live in a Mesopotamia. We live in a place that doesn't like God, doesn't talk about God, doesn't revere God, doesn't fear God, doesn't respect God, doesn't think God is important. 
And we begin to think, well, well, I wonder if God could even work in my life in, in a culture, in a society like this. Well, of course he can, because there's no limit to what God can do. Some of you, you live in bondage. Some of you, you've been raised in a culture that hasn't taught you about God. And yet God can still meet you where you're at, and God can work in your life. The point is you can't confine God to a certain area or a certain idea or a certain, or a certain place. You can't put God in a box. You have to realize he's transcendent. You have to realize that he's omnipresent. You have to realize that he's everywhere and he can work in our life. If God can meet Father Abraham in Mesopotamia before he's circumcised, before he's given the law, before he's officially made the father of a nation, then God can work in my life. God can come into my Mesopotamia. God can come into a dry and thirsty land and meet us there and show us his glory and bring us into relationship with him. But when we become legalistic, when we've been in the church for too long, when we've been religious for too long, when we've been around and we kind of start going through the motions of, I'll go to church and then I'll go over here and I got my religious life and I got my money life. I got my religious life and I got my sex life. I got my religious life and I got my friend's life. I got my religious life and I got my lifestyle. And we start compartmentalizing our relationship with God and we say, God, you're, you're just over there and I'm going to do this stuff over here and this over here and I'll come over to you every now and then and talk talk to you. No, no, no. The God of glory is the God of everything. He's everywhere. And we are to to unleash our perspective and guide the stream of consciousness in our mind and our heart, renew our minds by knowing that God can work in our lives. If God can work in Mesopotamia, God can work in our little church in the middle of central Illinois, and God can work in whatever circumstances you're going through right now. Don't limit God. Legalism always limits God. Legalism always comes to you and it preaches message and teaches the Bible in such a way it's like, well, until you help yourself, then God's not going to help you. Well, until you get your life cleaned up, then God can't come in. Better clean up your heart and then maybe Jesus will come in. That's legalism. And that's saying that God can't overcome your, your problems, your, your issues. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody who opens up to me, I'll come right on in. It doesn't matter how messy it is in there. I'll come up and clean it for you. I'll come up and, and free you. I'll be your liberator. Open up to this idea that if God can meet Abraham in his pagan ways, worshiping the moon, then God can certainly meet us. You see, we don't want to be legalistic because legalism always limits what God can do in a person's life. There's an upward problem. But ultimately, not only is there an upward problem, there's an inward problem as a result of legalism. Let me skip down to verse 8. It says here uh, that he gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Here we go, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his households. We move from 
lessons from Abraham in Mesopotamia to Joseph in the land of Egypt. And the point is still that God is working dynamically outside of the promised land, outside of the temple. In fact, God is working in Joseph's life in Egypt, and he's clearly not working in the patriarch's life who live in the promised land. But ultimately, we see the inward problems that legalism always produces in people's lives. You see that? Verse 9. The patriarchs were jealous. Everybody say jealous. Ooh, they're jealous. And legalism always works envy, jealousy. uh, uh, Legalism always works insecurity. And you want to know why it makes us so insecure? Because we're working so hard to make ourselves right with God through self-assertion, through self-power, through our own abilities, through our own rules and regulations. We're working so hard to eat the right foods and and to do the right things and to say the right things and to go to church right and to tithe and to and to sing and to preach and and we're working so hard and when we see somebody who we perceive to not be a spiritual us and that they still get good stuff we go ooh if you ever read the story of Joseph in Genesis you know he was the little brother he was a mama's boy everybody say mama's boy He's sitting around, sitting with his mama. And his daddy liked him more than all of his brothers and gave him a special coat. Meanwhile, the patriarchs, all his big brothers are out working hard. They're sweating. And they're the patriarchs. I mean, we're patriarching here. We're doing God's stuff out here. We're, We're in the promised land doing God's stuff. And there's that pretty boy sitting around on mama's lap all the time getting a nice coat. They're so eaten up with insecurity because they've earned their salvation. They've earned the right to think that they're right with God. They've earned their right with works. It always creates insecurity because there's people who get things that they don't deserve. And they're jealous. You know, jealousy. You say, what is jealousy? Jealousy is two things. Let me tell you what jealousy is. Number one, jealousy is you have something I really want. Right? So if you're driving down the road in a Mustang, I become envious and jealous of you. I really want what you have. I want the stuff you have. I want the home you have. Whole culture is filled with jealousy, isn't it? But jealousy is the second thing. The second form of jealousy, which is more devious, is I just don't want you to have good things. I don't care what I have as long as you don't get anything good. Right? That's that's what religion does. Religion's like, I'll suffer for God. I just want to make sure everybody else is suffering. I'm miserable at church. I'm miserable as a religious person. And I want everybody else to be miserable too. Patriarchs, it's a God thing. They're trying to be moral and they can't be moral. And they're suffering and they're out there working. And there's Joseph so comfortable Misery loves company. And Joseph was not keeping company. This idea of jealousy and and insecurity and the inward rottenness of legalism. The way you can look so good and so religious and so confident outwardly. But inwardly it's being so full of hate and envy. And I just don't like these people. 
This goes back to Cain and Abel, two brothers going to church. Remember that story in Genesis? Two brothers going to church. There's Cain and Abel. And they're going to church, and they go to the altar, and they offer up their sacrifices. Abel throws down his sacrifice. Cain throws down his sacrifice. And God says, I really like Abel's sacrifice. Cain, eh. And Cain's like, ooh. And, of course, he kills Abel. That's legalism. Jesus told the story about the two brothers. One brother, the younger brother, takes the inheritance, goes off, lives in wild living, and then comes back. And the father runs out and meets him and throws a party. Meanwhile, the older brother's been working the whole time. And the older brother was filled with jealousy over the little brother in the party. Mary and Martha. Martha working in the kitchen, working up a sweat. Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's thinking, you know, why don't you come in the kitchen and work? Jealousy. Legalism eats us up with jealousy. Because we're, we're so identified in what we're doing and not what God's doing. We're so identified in our own works that we become insecure. And you know, God doesn't want us insecure. God doesn't, God doesn't want us so tied up in the knot and in our heart and in our soul and in our spirit. God wants to liberate us from this. He wants to liberate us from the patriarchs. And it's clear that the patriarchs are like these Sadducees, these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. Joseph is like Jesus. And ultimately, the Joseph, he, gets, he becomes ruler. Jesus died. He's raised. He becomes ruler. You see, ultimately, legalism is not the way of God. Skip down to verse 12. It says, But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. In other words, Joseph gets sold into bondage into Egypt, but he becomes ruler. There's a famine, so they have to go to Egypt to get some food. On the first visit, they don't recognize that it's their little brother who they sold into bondage. But on the second visit, verse 13, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. In other words, there's a word of hope for all of us who struggle with legalism. And the word of hope is that even though we might have killed Jesus on the first visit, Jesus visits us again. Stephen is saying Jesus is visiting you again. Even though you've killed him and and you crucified him, here's Jesus again in the Holy Spirit and in this message. And ultimately what happens in the story of Joseph and his brothers is his brothers repent. They bow down to Joseph. They say, we're so sorry. We've sinned against you. And Joseph's like, it's okay. Get up. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love you. And ultimately the story ends very well in the book of Genesis chapter 50. Likewise and similarly, we are to come to Jesus with our legalism and bow down and say, I'm so sorry, I've rejected you, now come into my life and Jesus will welcome us as we repent of our inward insecurities and our bondages and our jealousies and our envies. God is not limited by land he's certainly not limited by our emotions he can still work in our life when we're messed up let's pick it up in verse 15 Jacob went down into Egypt and he died he and our fathers and they carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem Shechem ultimately is Samaria. Jews hated Samaria. And really this is telescoping a couple of purchases and a couple of burials sites in, 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 uh, in the book of Genesis that Abraham purchased. He really bought this land and, and put an altar there. 
And ultimately, Jacob was laid in a different tomb, but Joseph himself was laid in the tomb in Shechem. And in the book of Joshua, chapter 24 and verse 32, it outlines that, that Joseph was laid in this tomb in Shechem. But the important point for us is this, is that God worked even in Samaria. So even when he did work in the promised land, he worked in the least expected place because God is unlimited. God can work anywhere. It's not about place. It's about the person of God. It's not about rule. It's about a relationship with him and giving him our insecurities. So there's lessons from Abraham in Mesopotamia, lessons from Joseph in Egypt. Finally today, we look at lessons uh, from Moses in Midian. And if Abraham teaches us an upward problem that legalism produces and Joseph gives us lessons about inward problems with legalism, Moses teaches us ultimately about outward problems that legalism produces. And let me skip down. Stephen really spends most of his time on Moses' life. He breaks it up into 40 year, three sections of 40 years because Moses lived to be 120. And we know about the first 40 years because that's when he was a baby and got put in the thing. And, and he went down the Nile River and the Pharaoh's daughter raised him. And he was ultimately educated in Egypt and prepared in Egypt to be a deliverer. Because God, again, can work beyond the promised land and beyond any place. He can work in Egypt. But it says, let me pick it up in verse 23. It says that when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Here's Moses. He's like, hey, he's my Hebrews. I need to go out and help them out. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. A second visit in verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and, and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, here it is, Moses, he goes in, he's like, hey, man, the Egyptians, like, beating him up. Hey, Egyptian dude, get out of here. Kicks him out and kills him, and, and the guy didn't understand what he was doing, and Moses was saving him, and he's like, why are you saving me, right? And that's kind of like Jesus came, and it's like, I want to save you. I want to take care of your, your stuff and your darkness and your sin, and I want to die for you on the cross, and I want to defeat death, and I want to take care of all your problems, and many people just like, why do you want to do that? The second visit, he goes, and they're fighting each other. Even Israelites are fighting each other. He goes, why are you fighting? Why do you wrong each other? And, and then they, they're unkind to him. They don't understand him. They're hostile to him. In fact, they become almost nearly abusive to, to Moses. And they bully him to the point to where Moses flees, and he goes to Midian. This is the outward issue of legalism. Legalism always creates uh, irreconcilable differences and conflicts between people because legalism makes, of course, self-righteous people. And what self-righteous people do is they make a religion out of being critical of other people. Can I get an amen? When you're legalistic, you, become, you make a, a religion out of being critical of everybody except for yourself. You start 
criticizing everybody. You see everybody's flaws. You see every speck in everybody's ears. And you stop seeing the big plank of wood that's sticking out of your own eye. Isn't that what Jesus said? And that's what's happening here. They're so self-righteous, even as slaves, they're filthy, they're dirty, they're in bondage, they're living in Egypt where they shouldn't be anymore. They're they're being oppressed and persecuted. And they're so eaten up with self-righteousness that when Moses comes to help them, they abuse him and they're abusing each other, which sounds like a lot of churches in the world, by the way. Churches abuse outsiders. Churches abuse each other. Churches create conflict with each other, you see. Legalism has an upward problem with, God, with a view of God. It has an inward problem with insecurity. It has an outward problem in relationships. It's always leading to conflict. And the way out is to remember that God continues to work in unexpected ways, and we need to let him. In fact, look at verse 30. I love verse 30. It says, now when 40 years have passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Now think about it. Again, we're in the shadow of the temple. Glory is filled with gold. It's got, it's, it's got all the decorations. I mean, HGTV couldn't come up with this thing. It's beautiful, beautiful temple. And, and, and there's Stephen in the shadow of the temple and he's, saying, and he's reminding them that one of God's greatest revelations in the history of all revelations came on an ugly mountain. And if you've ever seen a picture of Mount Sinai, it is ugly. It's in Gentile territory. And not only that, but God reveals a theophany through a flame, through a bush. Everybody say bush. A little ugly bush. With the flame, it doesn't get eaten up. It's on an ugly mountain in Gentile territory. And the most important revelation that Moses ever got happened there. God can save us from a bush just like God can save us from a rugged cross. Can I get an amen? God can save us through, through an empty cave. God can save us through a fire and a bush. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Any ground is holy where God is. Any ground where God works in your life, where you're having a relationship with him, that is holy ground. And that holy ground can be anywhere where God works. And then we get the gospel. You see, this is the key to overcoming legalism. Legalism says you got to work your way up to God. How how much pressure is that, by the way? i got to work my way up to God. i got to get everything right. i got to work my way up. And if I do it just right, God will like me. But you see in verse 34 that the gospel is God coming down. God says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He sees our affliction. He sees your affliction. He sees your weakness. He sees what's impossible for you. I have heard their groaning. 
He hears your crying out and your bondage, all the, all, the, all the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that comes from sin, all of the insecurities and the bondages. He, he hears us crying out, those tears at night that nobody sees, those prayers that are lifted up in the middle of the darkness, those moments of incredible vulnerability and weaknesses. God hears our cries. And he says, I have come down to deliver them. God comes down to where we're at. God meets us in his holiness, in his glory, in his love, in his grace. He meets us where we're at so that he can save us and deliver us. Moses and the exodus of, uh, from Egypt becomes a great picture of our own exodus from sin and bondage and Satan and darkness because God comes down. And the moment we forget that it's God who meets us where we're at is the moment that we will become legalists. But, the, but as we celebrate the gospel, as we celebrate that God comes to us and meets us and saves us, that's when we will be transformed by grace. And that does away with our inward problems. Stephen goes on to talk about how Moses was rejected even though he delivered the people. And all the people rejected Moses. Verse 35, note and underline the times it says, this Moses. See that? This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Just like Jesus appeared to be our redeemer from the cross. This Jesus, this Moses, this man let them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A direct prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 about Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Listen, everybody look up here. You want to know why you don't want to be legalist? Because as soon as you become a legalist, you don't need Jesus anymore. Because legalism is all about what you can do. Legalism keeps us from accepting and obeying the gospel of Jesus. And the moment a church or a group of people or anybody becomes a legalist is the moment that they're not talking to Jesus. They're not listening to Jesus. They're not, they're not treating Jesus like their prophet, their king, their priest. Every single day, it is Jesus plus nothing. Every single day, it is Jesus plus nothing. And everything plus or everything minus Jesus is nothing. Jesus is everything for us. He delivers us. He's leading us. We are his disciples. We listen to his word. We ask him to help us. We surrender our weaknesses to him. It's his strength that makes us strong. It's always about Jesus. But legalism will not listen to Jesus. Legalism will make it about something other than Jesus. And that's the problem. That's what Stephen is saying. Well, as we go down, skip down to verse 44, we look at the tabernacle in the wilderness for the final lesson that Stephen gives. We have this upward problem in our view of God, our inward problem of insecurity, our outward problem of conflict and, 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 and division, irreconcilable differences. And then we get this final kind of rule. It says here in verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses 
and directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they, were when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. There's a contrast almost between the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. And one of the contrasts is, is that the tabernacle is plain, it's in the wilderness, it's no big deal. Solomon builds this great, beautiful temple, which was not a bad thing. But the problem was, is that Solomon and the temple became uh, seen as a place where God resided, almost a representation of God. And that's why in verse 48, uh, it says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen's implied idea is that the temple was not so much for God and confining God. The temple was for people to come and be reconciled with God. It became a pattern of Jesus. And ultimately, that pattern is fulfilled by Jesus, but was never a limitation upon God himself. I could go on about that and... Some textual issues there, but i got to get to the application. And Stephen's application happens in verse 51. I'm glad I don't end my sermons like this. He says, you stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the applications for us, it's kind of threefold here. First of all, stop being stiff-necked with God. You know, being stiff-necked is being stubborn. It's being unwilling to rethink your ways and to rethink your relationship to God. You're so frigid and unchangeable. Can Scripture change you? Can the Holy Spirit change you? Don't be stiff-necked with God. If God is calling you to rethink your theology, your approach, your perspective, then do it. Secondly, he says you're uncircumcised and hardened ears. That means you're both spiritually dead and unwilling to hear the truth. Are you unwilling to hear the truth? Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward relationship with God. And when he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, he's saying that inward relationship with God is broken down and you're unwilling to listen and you're unwilling to be affected by God's truth. Finally, do you resist the Holy Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit who applies God's truth immediately to our heart and are we being influenced and led financially, sexually, in every possible way? Are we being led spiritually in our theology? Are we being led by the Holy Spirit? Are we being led by our own ideas and preferences in life? Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be uncircumcised in heart and ears. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. But of course he says here, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Well, they did all of them, didn't they? Joseph, Moses. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Tradition has it that the prophet Jeremiah was beheaded. Isaiah was killed. 
All the prophets were killed or stoned or whatever by their own people, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. In other words, you, you killed the messengers of God and then you killed the message of God, which is Jesus. You crucified him on the cross. Well, the Sanhedrin just loves this, right? I mean, they, they love this message. And so, of course, in verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You ask, how can I beat legalism in my life? Well, number one, look upward. Look upward to Jesus. And look at Jesus as your hope. Look at Jesus sitting there at the right hand of God. He's defeated death. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of God. And it's by his work that you're made right with God. Look up to Jesus and remember it's all about him. And that will help you to defeat legalism. Stephen, as he's preparing for his own death, is showing us how to live in the gospel. And the first step to beating legalism and beating that upward trend and that upward problem is to look up to Jesus and his work. Look at verse 56. He said, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Literally, the Bible says that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. But in this situation, Jesus stands up and approves of Stephen's testimony. He approves of Stephen's sermon. And what Stephen is saying by telling them that that he sees Jesus is Stephen is saying, Jesus agrees with me. Jesus has stood up. And listen, Jesus said, anybody who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge them before angels. And because Stephen was willing in this situation to stand for Jesus, to look up for Jesus, Jesus stood up and said, I approve. Look up to Jesus, the one who's defeated death in our place. Verse 57, but they cried out with loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This stoning was not like one big boulder killing him. It was like a million little stones, and they're just hitting him over and over and over again. And you can imagine the pain and the suffering that Stephen is going through as he's getting hit by those stones and bloodied on the head and on the face and on the arms. I mean, it just must have been a a mess, a million... Thousands of stones. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. This is amazing. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is almost a direct quote of Jesus himself when he was on the cross. And he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Both Jesus in his death and Stephen in his death shows us that the second way we defeat legalism is by giving him our spirit, by giving him our life and our identity, by surrendering who we are, by surrendering our hopes and our dreams and our fears and all the things that rule us, all of our functional saviors that are shaping our identity and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my heart. Jesus, it belongs to you. In fact... It's a quote from Psalm 31 5. Psalm 31 5 was a prayer that little Hebrew children were taught to pray right before they went to bed. Into your hand I commit my spirit. It was a, it was a bedtime prayer in the book of Psalms. 
And Jesus quoted that psalm on the cross. Stephen quotes it here. And it is the fundamental childlike faith of surrendering to Jesus that saves us, makes us right, and keeps our identity from being shaped not by legalism, but being shaped by grace and the gospel. Give Jesus your spirit. Look inward and give him all those inward identity issues. Finally, in his death, he shows us how to live in the gospel. Verse 60, and falling to his knees. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, he's just bam, 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 and he's standing there. Bam, bam, bam. He sees Jesus. Bam, bam, and he gives him his spirit, and then finally he can't take it anymore. He finally falls to his knees because he's so bloodied and, and beaten up and broken by these stones. He just falls to his knees, and amazingly, in this very moment, he says, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He forgave these people as he was dying by their hands. Just like Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And if you want to fight legalism in your life, here's what you've got to do. You have got to forgive your enemies. You have got to forgive people in your life. You've got to lay aside grudges. You've got to walk in this gospel forgiveness. And just like Stephen was like Jesus forgiving his enemies, we have to forgive our enemies and not hold grudges and work it out and forgive one another. Legalistic people can never forgive people. They can never forgive anybody. Because it's always about performance. And until you perform for them, they're not going to like you. Stephen shows us how to walk in the church, how to walk in the home, how to walk in marriage, how to walk in friendship, how to walk with our brothers, how to walk with our sisters. We might have conflicts. We might have differences. But at the end of the day, if we're going to fight legalism, we have to forgive our enemies and forgive one another just like Stephen. And if Stephen can forgive people who are stoning him to death, then, brother, I can forgive you. And you can forgive me. Are we people of forgiveness? And I know for some of you, you're like, man, you don't know. I, I've been really abused. I could never forgive and go back and, and, and be with that person again. And you might not be able to. But do you know that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean being with the person. Forgiveness means I'm not going to be influenced by that person's abuse anymore. I'm going to forgive them and let it go and give it to God. In Stephen's death, He shows us upward, look up to Jesus. Inward, give Jesus your heart, your identity. And outwardly, walk in love and forgiveness.